Hello, I'm Paul Scott, and today I'm talking to Dorian Gonzalez, of the CEO of Belvoir BLV. Hello, Dorian. Hello, Paul. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Uh, quick disclaimers: I'm not charging a fee. I don't hold Belvoir shares personally, and uh, nothing is recommendation or advice. So please do your own research. Uh, the obligatory first question then, uh, Dorian, for anyone not familiar with the company, could you give us um, a brief description of Belvoir's businesses? Um, yes, yes, sure, Paul. I, I think probably the easiest way to explain it is that um, at the heart of our business, we are a franchise business, which I appreciate some people understand franchising and some people don't. Um, some of the biggest brands in the UK, McDonald's, Vodafone, um, Subway, um, you know, very recognisable brands, they operate franchise businesses the same as we operate a franchise business. It's called business format franchising, um, where the franchisor, which is us, comes up with a concept and um, we sell that concept to individuals who want to trade underneath one of our brands. And we, we've now got, um, so different to sort of takeaway food, our chosen area um, of industry is, uh, is property. So we do property lettings, property sales and, uh, and mortgages um, under a slightly different uh, brand, but essentially we've got six different property brands, um, which include um, sort of Belvoir, um, Newton Fallowell, which is very much East Midlands uh, region. Uh, Northwood is another one of our brands. Uh, Lavelle in Lincolnshire, Humphreys, which is a student lettings brand, and, uh, and, a, and a new brand called Mr and Mrs Clark. So we've got a number of brands operating through the UK, and, um, and, and, and if someone's interested in running their own business, but they don't want to do it on their own, they want to do it as part of a much bigger business who will support them and help them be successful. That's exactly what we do. Okay, and I should mention as well on your investor relations website, there's a very good slide deck um, <clears throat> that you uh, used, which anyone can access. So I'll put a link into that. So if if there is anything you want to refer to in this interview, by all means, mention slide whatever number, and people will be able to look it up. Um, so there's very good description about the business in there on slides um, two and three and four. That's fine. So, so I refer people to that. Also, I've got to mention the Investor Meet Company webinar that you did, I think, yesterday or the day before, which was so comprehensive. I did wonder about whether there was any need for me to interview you because you covered absolutely everything in that. So I'll try not to duplicate that. So going back to your franchising model then, so how does it work and why do these are very small agents, estate agents generally, aren't they? Why do they pay roughly 10 to 12 percent of, the, of their revenues to you so willingly and what do they get in return? The, um, I mean, the whole sort of principle of franchising is that um, you can join a sort of bigger brand. Um, you can get support, maybe financial support, operational support technical support, certainly, um, business support. Um, you, 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 in essence, pay the franchise or a relatively small amount of your turnover. In our case, it's 10 to 12%, depending on which model you belong to. And, um, and you build a business within the franchisor's bigger business. That's the sort of principle of franchising, and, 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 and ours is no different than that. If somebody joins us, we provide training, initial training, ongoing support, business support, mentoring. Um, we offer acquisition support. Um, we've helped our franchisees to buy 126 other businesses over the last eight years. And you know, if you're new to running your business, 
taking on an acquisition can be quite daunting. And so, you know, if, if you're a franchisee of ours, we hold hands with the franchisee and help them through the uh, through the entire process. And we provide website, as I say, technical support, IT support in some areas. And um, and, and the main industry that we're in, uh, which is property lettings, that that's, that represents around 60% of our sort of um, our, our, our gross profit, if you like, as a, as a business. Um, we manage 75,000 properties across the UK. And what I'm coming to is, is that property lettings is quite technical. So there are there are maybe 150 rules, regulations, and laws that 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 preside over how a property should be managed. And of course, we are dealing with people's homes and you've got to take that really seriously, um, homes and lives. And, um, and and we help our franchisees just to navigate the you know quite bewildering array of, um, of legislation. So it's quite a complex area. You know, it's very different to serving you know, a sandwich at lunchtime. It, you know, it, it's a very technical, uh, very technical sector, lots of rules and regulations and, um, and, and we clearly want to get it right. And do you look after things like website creation, negotiating deals with Rightmove and uh, marketing support? Do they get that as part of the package as well? They certainly do. So we, we negotiate discounts and deals, um, special deals with um, with most suppliers. But we also allow franchisees quite a lot of flexibility over which suppliers they decide to use. Because you know, on one hand, um, some franchise models restrict the franchisee's ability to trade outside of the franchise model, i.e. they have to buy all of their products and services from the franchise, or we're different to that. So we, we negotiate group schemes with, let's say, to use your example, Rightmove or Zoopla um, or on the market, but we don't tell franchisees they have to use them. They can choose whichever one works best for them in their area. And, um, and, and some websites are better in some areas and others are better in, in, in other areas. Um, yeah, we, we've got, we give full marketing support and we will even, um, we, we offer what we call managed marketing. So if a franchisee wants us to look after their social media and their social media posts and you know, tweet for them and put posts on Instagram for them, we can do that as well. So it's a, you know, it's a full service franchise. Um, our very first franchisee, um, in fact, I didn't say this on IMC, so you'll be very pleased with me, Paul. Um, our very first franchisee um, joined us 27 years ago. He's still with us. Um, mm. It's a guy in Scotland. Um, we gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award, actually, a, few, a, a, a couple of weeks ago at a, at a conference, um, a chap called Andy Campbell. Um, he's got a business that's growing. He's brought his, recently he's brought his son and daughter into the business to help him run it. And, um, and we've got a lot of family units within franchising. It's very family friendly. Um, so we've got, you know, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, brothers and sisters, you know, we've, and, and what's quite common is that if, if a, uh, the principal franchisee works very hard for 10 years and builds a business, once they've done the, the, the sort of hard yards, um, it, it's pretty pretty sensible to kind of bring a family member in and maybe look to pass the business down to, um, you know, another generation. That actually is quite common in our business model because our businesses are underpinned by recurring revenue. Mm. And I suppose... I suppose the litmus test is whether what your churn is like for the uh, for, for the franchisees. Do you do you get many of them departing and to run independently, for example? Um, well, they they can't depart and run independently, but they can depart. Um, so as part of our sort of franchise model, we own the goodwill of the, the essentially we own the client base, if you like. Um, within each franchise. So a franchisee can't just disappear and open up as something else. Um, they, they can, if they wish, sell their franchise 
to another franchisee, either new or existing, and the highest value franchise that has been sold in recent years is probably maybe 1.7 million. Um, but when, because our franchises are worth something, they've got an asset value. Franchises aren't going to just walk away from them, Paul. They're, you know, they're, they're very keen to build them, and then if they do decide to exit, you know, they can sell them on, and that, you know, that that's all part and parcel of, of the attraction of, of our model. Yeah. Um... And it obviously works very well. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is really to shine a light on the on the on Belvoir's excellent track record. Um, I've followed you for years, and I initially had slight concerns over the level of gearing, but over the last five or six years, uh, you know, you've gradually paid off all the gearing, self-funded a load of acquisitions, paid good divvies as well, and you've just reported 9.1 million profit before tax for 2022. Um, which is really impressive, I think. And yet, your share price seems to... I know CEOs shouldn't really comment on the share price, but I've got to flag it up. It's its really quite low. I think your PE is about nine, and you seem to be priced like a cyclical company that people are yeah. expecting a recession. But it seems to me your business is actually really resilient and recession-proof. Um, so what's, what's your, what do you think? It, it is. I mean, again, that's a really good question with a few sort of layers in there, Paul. So I sort of, one thing I didn't answer, by the way, was the, you asked about churn um, amongst oh, yeah. franchisees. Oh, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so, my, my, my apologies. Um, so in terms of losing franchisees um, across our network, in, in terms of them failing, um, it's virtually nil. Um, so we just don't have franchisees failing in a, in a normal year. Um, way, way more than 90% of our franchisees are profitable. They're well established. And we've been doing this a long time. You know, I, I've been in the business for 18 years, and we know our franchisees extremely well. Um, the, where we do see churn is that some people like to build a business and then exit and, and take the, you know, their new, the value of their asset and go and do something else. We're absolutely fine with that. So people retire, people split up, things happen. And, um, and we normally see um, about um, sort of 7 or 8% of the network each year uh, will normally sort of resell for retirement reasons or you know, reasons that they want to go and do something else. And as I said earlier, the highest sort of resale we've had is about 1.7 million. And we've got um, a, a list of people sort of who who are constantly engaging with us to, to buy these franchises because they're, they're quite you mentioned earlier that you know they can be quite small well the average revenue of a franchisee in our model is 315,000 a year mm. per franchise um, which is significantly higher than the sort of home run type franchise models and of course most of our franchisees have got lettings inside their business which is recurring no matter what happens. And you mentioned resilience. Well, when I think back to COVID, you know, the first sort of half of 2020, with our doors closed, our, fran our lettings franchisees retained 90% of their revenue, even with their shops closed. Gosh. Just, just to give you an idea of the resilience, um, we traded successfully through the, the, the financial crisis, 2007-9, um, and in fact, we floated off the back of the, um, of, of, the, of the credit crunch. So we are a very resilient model, and I think, coming back to your question, you know, I, I think that, I think, and we, we did, you mention IMC as well, Paul, I mean, we had the feedback mm. after that session, um, and, and, and across the people that, that Tick the buttons at the end. 83% um, felt that our, share was un our shares were undervalued. 1% um, thought they were overvalued, which is probably one. We had about 90, 90 people. That was one person. So hopefully that wasn't me pressing the wrong button. Um, but um, but I, I mean, that, that just speaks for itself. And 83% think they were undervalued. And you know what I do accept is you know you can 
so we floated at 75p a share back in 2012. You know, I, I do accept that the share price today is sort of 180. Um, we, we have got a fair amount of holders who have been with us since the very beginning. The, the thing to remember is that we pay a good dividend. Um, so our dividend um, in 2022 was 9 pence per share. Our dividend is forecast to rise over the next three years. In fact, it, it rises pretty much every year. Um, and we've got um, sort of income funds um, who own shares who are very pleased, you know, with the with the growth that, that they've seen over the last few years. So it really depends when you bought the shares ultimately, Paul, isn't it, I think, like, like most yeah. things. Yeah, yeah true. And, um, I mean, I went through the 2022 uh, results last night with a fine-tooth comb. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's a genuinely good cash generative business and I see that you, rough, you roughly split the cash you generate between roughly half and half dividends and half and half acquisitions. I mean is that and paying down debt after doing that as well. Is that a deliberate strategy or is that sort of just by accident really? It is. It's a deliberate strategy. When, when we, I remember in the very early days, sort of when we first listed, we, you know, we just about sort of struggled to cover our, our, our sort of dividend, and, it, and cover was sort of around one times, so it was barely covered. Um, dividend cover now is two times, which was strategic. Uh, and as you rightly say, it's about a 50-50 sort of distribution of, of funds, which, which, which seems to work really well for us for the first time since 2015. We finished the year net cash, so it's 1.2 million of net cash. It was 1.3 million of net debt at the end of 2021. We are, and, and, and that was after um, paying out 4.1 million in two small acquisitions. So, you know, if we hadn't have done the acquisitions, we'd have finished at sort of, you know, five to six million of cash. Um, this year, we are, we remain acquisitive. We've got cash to do deals if we, you know, if we, if we do the right deals. And every year we normally, um, sort of the rule of thumb is that we normally acquire one to two businesses at corporate level each year. Um, so we, we've made 10 acquisitions sort of since 2014. So we haven't done any yet this year. Um, so if they are going to happen, it'll be between sort of now and, and the end of the year. Yes, and I noticed on the, without duplicating it, on the Investor Meet Company webinar, um, your, uh, your, your FD, Louise George, she was saying that you've got potential firepower for bank borrowings if you need it. Uh, I mean, I was thinking sort of independently of before I saw the webinar, I thought you could probably put 10 or 15 million pound bank debt onto this without any, any significant risks. And she, funnily enough, mentioned a figure of about 10 million, but that you don't want to incur all the, the upfront fees by having that facility ready and waiting. Um, so what sort of yeah. level of bulk gearing would you be comfortable with if the right acquisition came along? Do you know what I mean? We, um, so you are, you are spot on in, in terms of we, we decided not to pay the sort of, you know, the high fees to have a facility. And we, we, we feel that, you know, if, if, a, if the right deal comes along, we can put the right, get the right facility in place, you know, in sort of six to eight weeks. Um, so we just didn't want to pay the sort of, you know, the fees up front. Um, we do have an overdraft facility, may I add. So we do have a small facility, but not, you know, certainly not, not the right facility if we saw a, a larger acquisition. Um, the highest sort of level of, of, um, of debt that we've been at, if memory serves, is around 12 million at the sort of height. And, and I would have said, you know, anything between sort of a million and, and, and 20 million would be pretty comfortable. You know, you can see how cash generative we are. Um, the, the, the potential facility that we can have 
Um, he, he's sort of maybe two times, two and a quarter times, maybe even two and a half times EBITDA. Um, but ultimately, you know, we just don't need that sort of facility. We've, we, we're generating cash at a pretty quick level. And I think that I think this year we're going to have enough cash generated from the operation to do the deals that we want to do. I think that's the, the bottom line. Oh, that's good news. Um, so, so let's talk about acquisitions in a bit in a bit more detail. Then you seem to have a good eye for these, and I don't think the share price reflects the fact that actually this has been a sort of successful buy and build type of business. Really, it's it's rated like a value share for some reason. I don't know why. So you seem to have a good eye for acquisitions. Do you have any uh, numeric or qualitative criteria then for for buying other businesses, and have any of them gone wrong? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question for that. You know, the, in, in our opinion, um, I'm going to switch wood now just in case, but not, none of the acquisitions that we, we've taken on have gone wrong. Um, so we've made, um, and I'll give you some more detail on that. So we, we've made, I said earlier that we've made 10 corporate acquisitions over the last sort of eight years, and, and the split between property and financial services is, is six property for financial services. So just to give you an idea on the financial service side, um, we've only bought four financial services business, uh, businesses. And we have paid around um, 10 million for those businesses um, over the last five years. So we, this, this is over a five-year period, not an eight-year period. So the first financial services acquisition we made was in 2017. The last one was Time, which is in the presentation that we, 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 we're talking about, um, and that was made sort of partway through last year. So we've made four. We paid 10, 10 million for all four of them. They've generated 15, over 15 million of gross profit and around 9.5 million of EBITDA. So, you know, back to your point, I think they are, they are good acquisitions. Um, they're always accretive. Um, they complement our business model. And, um, and we feel we can sort of, you know, by using the franchise network and other initiatives, we think we can sort of, you know, keep growing these businesses going forward. So if we get the chance, we're being a little bit more cautious um, this year um, on, on the multiple that we're paying. But if we can buy a couple of businesses this year on the FS side at a lower multiple than last year, you know, why wouldn't we, I guess, is the, is, is, is the question. Um, the property acquisitions are a little bit different. Um, you know, the first one we did was 2015. We wanted to get into a state agency, so we bought a, a 40 you know, a 40 office estate agency group that actually has performed really well for us. It was called Newton Fallowell, and we bought in expertise so we could get into a estate agency. Um, prior to that, we were just involved in residential letting. So, so still at the heart of the business, even though we've made a number of mortgage acquisitions and property acquisitions, um, just to be clear, that almost 60% of our gross profit comes from residential lettings. So underneath us, you've got a very strong residential lettings portfolio of 75,000 properties. Um, but yeah, so, so none, none have gone wrong. Um, you know, across all of those 10, we've still got them all. They're all doing, you know, all doing well, and we're very pleased with them. Um, but we are quite cautious normally in our, in our approach to acquisition, so we could do more, but actually we just concentrate on the right deals. Mm, yeah, great. And I suppose you mentioned 75,000 uh, letting properties that you manage. I mean, in terms of market share, that's that's barely scratching the surface. I, I presume what must, it must be several million, mustn't it? Private renters. It is in in England. It's about 4.6 million. Um, wider UK, sort of 5.2, 5.3 million. So you are right. Um, that's not um, so. Our addressable market. The way I think about it is that let's say there are 4.6 million rental properties in England, which there are. Around half of those properties are managed by an agent like us. 
and about half of those properties are in the hands of uh, a landlord who chooses not to use an agent, which is fine. Um, I mean, there are some, some regulatory changes happening this year, such as it's called the Renters Reform Bill. Um, anybody can sort of you know have a look online, and it's you know it's fairly easy to understand. Um, but one of the, the the parts of this bill is that there will be an ombudsman scheme being rolled out across all private landlords, not just those who rent through an agent. So we, we we've given our clients access to an ombudsman scheme for uh, for many many years. You know it's been a legal requirement. But it hasn't been a legal requirement for a, a private landlord who rents through a, who doesn't rent through an agent. They haven't had to give their tenant access to redress. That, that could be, a, you know, a small game changer as far as the sector is concerned. And the rent reform bill does contain, you know, a few other things, sort of pets being allowed um, in many scenarios, um, the abolishment of Section 21. I won't go into too much detail, but, um, but it, it is. If you, if you, if anybody's got interest in the sort of rental sector, the renters reform bill is worth um, worth reading about. Yeah, I should probably have a read of that because I've got a buy to let myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, now the yes, so that's good. That answers one of my subsequent questions about the ombudsman. But I thought I misunderstood that last night from investing in a uh, company webinar, and it sounded more like a threat to you. But uh, I can see from what you've just explained that it's not. So that's good. That ticks off one of my questions. Oh. Now I've got to ask you a, one a one tricky question, so I don't get accused of asking soft questions. <laughs> So your trust pilot reviews—they're pretty grim, aren't they? I think um, I was bracing myself for your question. Whatever you're going to then, well, <laughs> right? So and now I can sort of embrace. And um, so I mean, we um, across so across the whole of the business. Um, so it, it, we we use a, a tool that aggregates all reviews across the web um, because mm -hmm. trust pilot—you know—whether you like it or dislike it, it's just one of many many different review platforms. Just one. Um, so we use an aggregator tool. It's called Trustist. Um, if my S's are coming across, I can on the call, but it's <laughs> Trustist. Um, and, and, and via this tool, um, the aggregated review score for Belvoir as a brand. Bear in mind, we have lots of different brands. So as Belvoir as a brand only, as a, as a, as a mainly lettings brand, the, the aggregated review score is 4.6 out of, out of 5. For okay. Northwood, it's 4.7. For Newton Fallowell, it's 4.6. And for Lavelle, it's 4.4. And just to sort of support that, you know, I accept that, you know, you've only got my word for that. The, the main review site for estate agents is a site called All Agents. So if you do want to have a look on All Agents, um, Northwood, for example, um, has won the best um, best sort of large franchise award um, six years in a row. I can't actually remember what they, what they did in 2022, but they certainly did for the six years up until 2021. Um, so we're very well thought of, you know, on on that side, and that's where tenants and landlords and buyers and sellers do leave some reviews. In addition to that, if you pick any one of our offices, you know, pick a handful of them, we find that most clients, when they're looking for an agent, tend to use, well, 95% use a geographic location. So, for example, um, property to rent in Grantham, um, people wouldn't normally put property to rent in the search bar. They would include a, 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 or, or find the letting agent Grantham. Um, they wouldn't normally exclude the geographic location. And we've trained our franchisees and supported them to use Google reviews um, mm -hmm. to a very high degree. And that's worked incredibly well for the business. I personally delivered that training sort of 10 years ago, and we've been supporting it ever since. So, I mean, if you just try me out and, you know, look for a few of our offices, but look on Google in the geographic location, and you'll find in most cases the reviews are very good.
Okay, well, thanks. For that. I'll have a look into that because what I was going to, another point I was going to make with the trust pilot things for lots of companies, it always seems to be people who are either delighted and give it five stars or have some sort of complaint and give it one star. So it's it's quite normal to have the two prongs, isn't it? And nothing much in the middle. And I and I did look at some other local estate agents, and it was very similar. People who sold their properties through you guys seem to give five star reviews. And all the one-star reviews seem to be tenants where something, all landlords where something has gone wrong. Yeah. And I suppose, for, given the number of offices you've got and that it's aggregating the whole country on there, you know, things are going to go wrong a bit, aren't they, I guess? Yeah, so I mean, Trustpilot is just one site, though. Bear in mind, if you aggregate all review sites, including all agents and Google yeah. and, and, and all, all together, put them together, you know, after the review score is still an average of 4.5 um, out of five stars, so that's across the board. I do accept on some sites it may not be, but the reason that we don't, I forgive give you the reason for that, the reason that we don't sort of um, push Trustpilot across, um, you know, across our franchise network is that we just didn't want to pay for the sort of higher level engagement. Um, you know, we, we didn't because that you know these charges have to be rebuilt to franchisees, and so with Google, with all agents, um, their review sites, the franchisees don't have to pay for, um, you know, to, to sort of promote themselves on, and uh, or to engage with. So that was that was just our historic, you know, rightly or wrongly, that was just our, our historic um, approach. And interestingly, one thing I would point out, Paul, is that I'm not looking for any sympathy, by the way, but the the um, when you're an agent, you, you are acting. As the go-between between two parties, and it's the same whether it's a house sale or whether it's a, a property to let. So, for, let me give you an example. So, if, if a landlord decides that they want to take the property back and move back into the property, which you know it's their home, ultimately, you know that is it's their prerogative to do that. Clearly, yeah. the tenant yeah. isn't going to be very happy. There isn't anywhere online that they can leave a review for their landlord. So, therefore, the agent gets effectively shot as for being the middle middleman. Mm -hmm. um, so you know that that is the nature of the beast, and 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 that we we understand we operate in that sector. One of the reasons that landlords value us to such an extent is that if something goes wrong with a property and it's three o'clock in the morning, um, we we deal with it. You know, warts and all, we deal with the, the issues that are, are sort of being raised. And and if you think about the property that you live in, you know, have a think about all the things that can go wrong. You can you know your boiler can break down, you can have a leak coming through the ceiling if you're in a block of flats. Water can run from the top floor through to the bottom floor. And property management is really, really complicated, which is good for us because, you know, being complicated, it means that people value the job that we do for them. But we have to deal with all of those complications on every single of the property that we, uh, that we manage. And, of course, when you're sitting between two parties, there's a chance that one party may not be happy with the outcome, but the other party might be utterly delighted. And it changes around from client to client, you know. Yeah, no fair point. So just, um, it's a smaller part of your business, but looking at the uh, property sales side of things, the estate agency, um, you've been saying for for quite a while that the uh, the mini budget in October or September last year Called, you know, it's been widely reported by lots of property companies as caused a bit of a hiatus and so on. And so the H1 2023 will reflect that because the pipeline of sales will have been disrupted. So um, I think we're all we're all geared up for that. And I think you mentioned before that you expect then a subsequent recovery in H2 of 2023. 
But um, you also noted that it can take up to five months from uh, a sale being agreed to it actually completing. So what are the main problems causing those delays then? Yeah, again, again, yeah, I mean, so so there are a couple of things now I'd like to just highlight, Paul. I think, you know, one of them is, um, so, so far this year, so right up to date, January and February, um, our estate agency revenue is is 2% down. So, you know, one might expect that after the mini budget, you know, the impact will be felt pretty quickly. Um, There is a delay, so we suspect that maybe March and April will be be down further than 2%, but 2% is neither here nor there. Um, But then after that, you know, we 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 expect um, you know, as you as you rightly point out, numbers to sort of pick up. Um, what we have seen is, and this is not my data, it's 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 somebody else's data, but um, it's from the web portals. But what we have seen in the first 11 weeks of the year across the UK, we've seen about 230,000 new properties become sold. So not brand new properties, sort of you know, sold subject to contract. So so yeah. it's so 230,000 deals put together. And, and those deals were put together after the mini budget and after Q4 last year. So these are sales agreed in the first part of this year. Now, it will take maybe five months for those deals to go through. But if you compare the, the, the activity in the first 11 weeks of the year, it's comparable to 2017 and 18. And in 2017 and 18, the UK saw 1.2 million transactions, which is kind of a normal level. So what, what I'm saying, what I'm sort of um, alluding to is that I think the forecast that all, everybody in property sort of put together at the start of the year based on our experience of Q4, I think, you know, part of me wants to think that it might have been a little bit conservative, but another part of me thinks, well, you know, it's only two months in, into the year so far, but we're not seeing, you know, a, a sort of dramatic reduction in the number of sales agreed. And I suspect part of that is that mortgage rates, um, people expect them to go much higher, uh, much quicker. Um, some of the, the sort of commentary suggests that mortgage rate, you know, bank rates may have topped out at sort of, you know, four and a quarter, maybe four and a half, if they go a little bit further. And, and I personally had a quote on my own mortgage two weeks ago, and, and my my quote was 3.99 percent, mm. which which is less than bank rate. That's two weeks ago. That's um, a five-year five-year fix, isn't it? Correct. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. It was a five-five-year fix, and 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 it was a sixty percent loan to value or less. And I accept that, you know, that's the best end of the spectrum. If you're at 90% loan to value, then you deal with a more expensive sort of circa five, five and a quarter percent. But um, but sort of point being, that's not the 8% or the 7% or the 9% that people were were thinking it could be in Q4. And, um, you know, I think what what I've always said to people over the years is that in the the property sector, in in, in the sector that we operate in, people are always moving home. You know, we, we focus on the macro level. Um, but at the sort of micro level, people are having kids and, you know, they're, people are splitting up and, and, you know, they need need new properties to move into. You know, life happens. So no matter what happens in the wider market, people will always move house, both on the rental side and on the sales side. Mm. And with mortgages, um, one of my theories is that when I was shopping around uh, for uh, uh, remortgaging I need to remortgage in about a year's time so I was just looking at what was available and it seems to me that the obvious although it's risky the obvious step to take now is to go from a fixed rate onto a two-year discount rate which can get you a mortgage rate pretty similar to what the fixed rates were a year ago I mean are you seeing a shift in in new mortgages towards discounted rather than fixed rates 
Well, what we are seeing is at the minute, we're seeing sort of, I mean, I think what, what you, you mentioned Q4, you know, a number of times, and, and just to put a bit of colour around that, we, we saw paralysis really brought in, in Q4 where people people could see rates going up. They didn't know where they were going to go, so the, their reaction was, like me, just to stand back, let things settle down and see where, where, where the sort of, you know, what happens next. But there is a danger, as you rightly point out, that if you don't fix at the end of your term, You'll go on to the lender standard variable rate, which can be terrifying. <laughs> you know, it can be yeah. you could you could be on a two a two percent deal, and it could shoot up to seven and a half because that's the, the lender's variable rate. So what I'm what I'm coming to is that if if you're on a decent fixed, you've got to do something like you're saying. It could be a discount or it could be a fix. But you know, my my, my general advice would be to um, to do something about it. You know, go and have a chat with a broker and and um, and have a look at your options. But and, and we will see and we are seeing a sort of difference in mix now of purchase mortgages, of remortgages, um, a change in the sort of view of fixed um, as well. Um, some people are saying that they want to go for you know a two-year and, and see, see what happens at the end of that, whereas my, my, me personally, I, I quite like the sort of the security of a five-year, you know, for example, but um, I, I haven't fixed mine just yet. I'm going to wait for... Um, Please don't take, I'm not giving you an advice, by the way, but, no. um, you know, what, what I'm going to do personally is um, I'm just going to hang on for a month or two. My, my deal expires in, in July. That's where my precipice is, <laughs> comes in. So, so I'm, I'm going to do something between now and, and July. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Now, just um, thinking about your stock market listing. So you floated, I think, in 2012, if I've got the right figure there. Um, and the share price now is similar to the, the peaks in, in 2013. So you've grown the business massively over 10 years, profits up threefold in just the last five years, and the stock market doesn't seem to have taken a blind bit of notice. So is it actually worth maintaining a stock market listing, would you say? You know, I think when I, when I sort of think back, I mean, if just to put a bit more sort of perspective around that, so the share price did rise very quickly in 2013, not long after list, listing, but then it fell back quite quickly, so it didn't stay at that level, Paul. It yeah, sort of fell back true. to um, it fell back to a pound, and then it sort of um, bumbled along for for a while um, at circa a pound. Then it lifted, and then in, uh, when when the COVID first lockdown happened, the share price dropped to if memory serves, I think 90p in the first lockdown. Of course, buyers then jumped in and bought lots of shares. So actually, if you bought at the start of COVID, for example, you could have paid 90p or you know, a pound for the share, so you've done very well. What I would say is that over the whole period, um, we paid a dividend every single year. You know, we've never never skipped a beat on the, never missed a beat on the uh, on the dividend. We did a, we suspended a dividend at the beginning of COVID, but then we made up for that dividend um, as COVID sort of started to clear. So we haven't, you know, we haven't missed any dividends ever. Um, and of course, our dividend has, has been going up pretty much every year. Um, which has made investors happy. So that's the other, the other factor of that. But I think the bottom line is, I mean, we're at, um, you know, now I think today we're at 187, so the share price has, has lifted somewhat. Um, but, you know, if 83% if of the people on the IMS call felt that we're undervalued, um, you know, I, I think, you know, that's, that, 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 that is the view. Mm, yeah, I think with, 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 um Companies like yourselves that are that are that are doing a, doing fine and are, and are on cheap valuations, I think there's potentially a lot of pent up investor demand on people who are just sitting on the sidelines to wait to see what happens. So, you yeah. know, these things could re-rate quite quickly. I think if the economic uh, 
once the economic situation improves. So thinking about tenants then, obviously this is your core business. Um, I'm told, I was chatting to a few estate agents last weekend, they said it's absolutely mad here in Bournemouth and I think elsewhere as well, that you know, they're getting 30, 30 inquiries for each property listed within a couple of hours and that it's a landlord's market because there's this structural shortage of properties to let. So, so that says to me that your core lettings business really should continue to do well, regardless of the economy. Is that fair? It should. It should. I mean, we're, we're <clears throat> so lettings revenue, um, so lettings MSF revenue, which is our royalty, um, is up six percent in January and February this year, um, um, sort of compared with last year. So, you know, that, that's you know, it's a good metric. Um, we'll also do it. We'll we'll also do more. Um, acquisitions of lettings booked this year, the same as we did last year, but I suspect we'll have a better year this year for those. But the, you mentioned a really good word, I mean structural. You're right in that, that just housing tenures, there is a structural issue here in that um, contrary to some sort of news reports, landlords are not leaving the sector. If, if you read the English housing survey, um, you will see that um, 2021 to 2022 saw an increase in properties in the private rented sector, not a decrease. Um, I think some news reports are confusing. Available stock being down, so i.e. The, the, the number of properties available for rent today, that is down, but the size of the sector has actually grown over the last two years. It hasn't decreased. But it's the availability of stock that is causing, or the lack of stock, that is causing um, rents to rise now. The, the reason for that isn't because landlords are necessarily exiting. The reason is, is, is demand poor. Demand is so high that you know you, you picked a couple of examples. I can give you endless amounts more, but if I give you one or two, you know, if you want to rent today, I suspect you will be up against 10 to 15 other people um, who are also looking to rent that property. Now that's not an ideal situation for an agent to be in. Um, it's certainly not an ideal situation for a tenant to be in. But what I'm coming to is there are maybe two different um, things that need to change if rental inflation is going to fall back. Um, and one of them is a, is a cooling off of demand, but I don't see any reason why demand will cool. Yeah. Uh, right, move, right Move is reporting that demand is 50% higher now than it was um, pre-pandemic. So that's, um, that's an, in, an incredible rate. Um, and I think there was a BBC report actually this morning, on, it's on the BBC app, the main news app, um, that says exactly the same. Um, that was today. Um, and at the other end of the scales, uh, increasing supply will also help a great deal. But ultimately, what is going to increase supply? Um, I, I personally don't think that politicians are going to be brave enough to um, open their arms and issue a load of incentives to get landlords buying properties to solve this problem. So, it's, it, you know, I'm afraid it's not going to be good news for tenants. They, they're going to be facing rental inflation for the foreseeable future. Mm, yeah, and I suppose, you know, uh, gross incomes are rising 6 7%. So you'd expect rents to be rising a similar amount, wouldn't you? Yeah, and, and actually that's the right figure because, you know, it, there, there are two different measures of rental inflation. One is upfront tenancies, so there's the stuff that you see on Rymove and Zoopla. That is up by 10% in most regions of the country, you know, across all agents. Um, but rents across all tenancies, including existing tenancies, is more like 5%. It's just shy of 5%, actually it's 4.7%. Um, so, you know, good, slightly better news if you're a tenant in a property because you're less likely to, to see these 10%. But, you know, as, as landlords' costs increase, um, taxation has increased, landlords' mortgage costs are increasing, you know, that, that landlords are in a position where they're having to pass some of these costs on. 
Yeah. I think that's probably all we've got time for, Dorian, but I was delighted to hear uh, that you're going to be coming again to the Mellow Investor Show in May, the physical show in Chiswick, um, which is where I met you and your chairman and your, your <laughs> CFO last time. So it was, yeah. I think it's, it's great to see that you recognize that, yes, webinars are brilliant, but actually there's no substitute really for meeting investors and having a proper chat face-to-face, is there? That's right. We, we also do the um, – so at the same time, I, I normally – do a couple of presentations on that day. It's only really our, you know, our sort of results or interim, so we, we put together a sort of little bespoke presentation. But it means that we get to talk to a room full of people all at the same time, and we do, you know, Q and A at the same time. So it always always gets quite interesting. Yes, yeah, I always find everybody's got a viewpoint on property. I'm not sure I agree with all of them all of the time, <laughs> but um, but property is one of those things where everybody has a view. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it's great hearing it from you, given you, you've spent your whole career absolutely immersed in it. So, uh, yeah, yeah. good. I mean, is there any, any closing remarks you want to make before we wrap up? No, I think we've had a brilliant round this week of investor meetings, lots of, uh, lots of support, movement in the share price, and um, we're going to keep doing what we're doing, cash generative, um, net cash, and we've got um, you know, a pretty exciting plan this year to continue growth by acquisition and organically. Fantastic. Well, thanks for your time, Doran. I really appreciate that and hope to speak to you again uh, when the next uh, trading update or results come out. That's great. Thanks for having me, Jess Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Doran. Bye. 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 Bye.